Good afternoon. I'm Callie Crossley. Today we're talking about Shakespeare's political drama, Coriolanus. The Commonwealth Shakespeare Company is producing Coriolanus for this season's Shakespeare on the Common. And last week, as a kind of preview, some of Boston's CEOs gathered for a staged reading of this work. Joining me to talk about this are Steve Mailer, the founding artistic director of the Commonwealth Shakespeare Company, and Daniel Kelly, a partner at McCarter and English. He's also been a moderator of these stage Shakespeare readings. We're also joined by our arts and culture contributor, Alicia Anstead. She's the editor of Inside Arts Magazine and the Harvard Arts Beat blog. Welcome to you all. Thank you. Hi, Callie. Great to be here. Uh, Steve, let's start this way. Give us just a thumbnail sketch of Coriolanus the play and the the main character, Coriolanus. Sure. It's Shakespeare's most political play. Uh, It was written late in his career. It's one of his longer works. He uh, wrote it in late, you know, right in the early 1600s, 1607, 1608. Um, And it's a play that really focuses on leadership and how uh, Coriolanus, who's a very successful general, is a disastrous politician. Uh, so it's, it's, it focuses on his journey from being a military leader to then being elected consul and his struggle to uh, submit himself to the, the people, to really uh, uh, to, to work the crowd as, as politicians are forced <laughs> to do. Um, and uh, uh, to sort of we see how, how it unhinges as he's unable to really make that connection with the people. And why Coriolanus? I mean, you pick uh, a play every year for the for the common, uh, and I think sometimes what's going on in the world has some impact on it. Right. Exactly. <laughs> well, yeah, you may not have noticed, but we're gonna, we're in an election cycle, <laughs> and uh, we we feel like this play is really a, ultimately the perfect play for our time because it's really about the relationship between the governed and the governors. Um, it's about the quixotic, mercurial uh, feelings of the people and how they f- choose one leader one moment and another the next, how they build someone up and then tear him down. And it's also about the pressures on leaders, the pressures to be both um, of the people and above the people. And so in that sense, I think it's really the perfect play for the time. It, it really feels ripped from the headlines. There's, uh, the opening scene is a, is a food riot, essentially. And as we know, food riots are really what started um, revolution in the Middle East and, and the Arab Spring. Um, so it, it feels very topical to us now today. It feels very much uh, Occupy Wall Street. I think the, the 99% 1% debate uh, that we have in our country is also very topical uh, in, in the play and very, very pertinent in the play. So, Dan Kelly, you're a lawyer and an actor, and you have for some time put together these stage readings, usually with lawyers, though, to look at some of the themes in Shakespeare's plays. But uh, when the selection was Coriolanus, did you immediately say, no, not lawyers this year, businessmen? Actually, Steve and I have been, (laughs) we've been collaborating for, this is our 12th year in terms of doing this. And it was my idea because I'm involved in a group called the Federalist Society. I chair the Boston Lawyers Division of the Federalist Society, which hosts debates and various uh, speeches about political and constitutional issues. It was my idea because of my love for Shakespeare and my uh, friendship with Steve that we could marry these two concepts together to talk about these great plays, to have an abridged version of them, and then bring out the political and legal aspects uh, in them in the panel discussion with the with the discussion which featured people of all political stripes and persuasions. And so we started this very modestly at Suffolk University Law School 12 years ago. And then it just built and it built and built uh, up and, and it's been very successful. And, and we have focused on leading public uh, officials uh, uh, and uh, judges and uh, 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 lawyers in the past. But this year, um, we wanted to do two things. We wanted to align this program with the program that Steve was doing this summer. That, we felt, was very important. And we also wanted to examine the notion of leadership as a whole, because Coriolanus himself is really an anti-leader, both in his military exploits, where he single-handedly conquers a city and disdains the the, the plebeian soldiers. And he's also, as Pete, uh, Steve mentioned, a terrible political leader who it does not want to subsume himself to the will of the people to campaign or to even govern. Um, so we have a play featuring an anti-leader. I thought it would be great to bring it, bring in business leaders to talk about what leadership, what what good leadership is, and how they got to where they are. 
Um, I, I, you might not say this because it might seem self-serving, but so I will. Uh, this is not to assume that lawyers heading firms are not leaders. <laughs> well, they, they are, too. But, you know, you wanted to align the business interests with the play. I just want to put that on the table. No, it's exactly. I mean, I'm, you, <laughs> no. you often do not find lawyers <laughs> transitioning into business and becoming uh, the CEO or president, although one of our uh, um, uh, participants this year, Jim Roosevelt, actually did that. He went from general counsel to a leader. But there are certain unique skills I think you find in CEOs who most often are not lawyers that you don't see among lawyers. But uh, I, I could take all the lawyer jokes. Uh, okay. Sure. All right. Fine. I just want to say that. <laughs> Alicia, I want to get you in here. Uh, when you uh, read this or looked at it again, because um, I know you've looked at everything, <laughs> uh, <laughs> what struck you immediately? Did you see those connections, the ones that uh, Steve and Dan have been talking about? Absolutely, I did. And one of the uh, interesting items to me about this play is that Stephen was saying how, you know, it it relates to our time right now. And I'm sure you'll agree with me on this, too, Stephen, um, when I make this comparison. You talked about the food riot at the beginning of the play. There's another food riot that started a little stir in Boston a number of years ago called the Boston Tea Party. (laughs) And, you know, it's, it's so resonant to me. And I really went from thinking about the Boston Tea Party to Occupy Wall Street to the front page of today's Boston Globe, Um, in which there is a story about the Obama camp targeting Romney's record in Massachusetts. And it goes so far as to say that strategist David Axelrod will stage a press conference, just steps from the office Romney once occupied. And it felt it felt almost incestuous to me in terms of news. I'm reading this play and thinking about how we stage politics. And, you know, you're right. This is all about staging leadership and staging politics. And there were, by the way, three other stories that I felt were torn from the pages of Coriolanus in today's Boston Globe, too, about our politicians. Well, you have to share. <laughs> okay, so, okay. <laughs> One is about uh, Trump's uh, a gaffe that Trump made. So he had a Coriolanus moment in one of the apps that he was developing there where he spelled America incorrectly. And that, of course, hit the, the cyberspace social media world and really went to town. That was on Romney. You said Trump. You mean Romney. I meant Trump. Really? Um, y- yep. Um, let me make sure I have that right. Uh, that was Romney. The Romney campaign release. Oh, yeah, I'm sorry. You're right. It is. And and it was. It, I'm sorry. Thank you, Callie. <laughs> you're reading the newspaper more closely than I am. And then Romney's likability on the rise, uh, the, according to one poll, uh, which reminded me again of, you know, the daily rise and fall of likability factors um, uh, that, that you also see in Coriolanus. And the, the third one is a little bit tangential, but it's Bush returning to the White House to be with Obama mm. for the um, unveiling of the, the uh, presidential portrait. And that, to me, felt these are two men who have not, in, in their time of knowing each other, had a lot of fun together. And I think about how that resolves in Coriolanus, too. How, how it does or does not resolve, as the case may be. But, you know, what happens when enemies, and I don't want to imply that, that Bush and Obama are enemies. I don't think they are. But they're on separate sides of the aisle, and here they are coming together really for a moment of show. Mm-hmm. All right. Uh, uh, this to both Dan and, and Steve. Is there a particular moment, uh, Alicia was just pulling from the newspaper and comparing uh, raising some of the, the, the resonant notes in Coriolanus. Is there a one particular note in the play that really stands out for you saying, this is our time too? Well, I, I think for me it is really the opening scene of the play, which is such a, uh, a fomenting and, and powerful and restless scene where you really see the struggles. You see the alignment of uh, uh, the people around a, a particular agenda and the oligarchy around an opposing agenda. And what's so great about Shakespeare, of course, is that, you know, all the heroes are villains and all the villains are heroes. He he's, takes this and makes it much more complicated. The people are not pure and uh, right or and correct, nor are the leaders wrong and malevolent. Uh, everyone is provided with enormous complexity as most issues are complex. It's very easy to devolve things down into black and white, but there's a lot of gray out there. And I think that's what's so great about what Shakespeare does is he really invites and supports the gray. 
Um, I think. Have, what, let me just ask this question: Do you have a sense of what was happening at the moment that he wrote this play? I mean, I know they're trying to set the exact time when he might have written it, but let's say over a period of five years, since nobody was quite sure what year he wrote it, that were there things going on that made him turn to this, you know, kind of down political sharp-edged play? Well, mm-hmm. you know, I, 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 I am the first to admit that I'm not a historian nor am I a Shakespeare scholar. Uh, but You're not what, Stephen Greenblatt. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Okay. No, that's the that's the other Stephen. Um, no, but uh, what I would say is obviously he lived he lived in a in, in a hierarchy. He lived in a royal in, in a uh, there was a royal in charge when he was uh, when he was writing his plays. So I think that his attitude towards democracy is always. Uh, convoluted and suspect. And I don't think he really uh, is, uh, you know, a a storm the barricades kind of proletariat. Um, He depended on the royalty to, uh, you know, fund his theater. So it's it's very complicated, I think. Um, I think what's remarkable is obviously this play was written 400 years mm-hmm. ago, and it literally feels like it, you know, it came through the mail today from a from a contemporary <laughs> American playwright or a contemporary Egyptian playwright. Dan, yeah, I, well, is there a particular moment for you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I think there's a great moment. I, I mean, the, first of all, there's a great mother son relationship mm. in this play. Uh, the he is re- literally induced by this very domineering. Uh, strong-willed mother who should be the candidate herself because she's got all it takes to govern and to lead and to appeal to the people. He meaning Coriolanus. Coriolanus, yes. her, mm-hmm. her son. Mm-hmm. She, he, she, Volumnia, the mother, t- induces him to go out and campaign. And the ritual for campaigning um, is to strip yourself down into just a very simple uh, uh, clothing and to display in, for the people the wounds that you have suffered as a result of the battle that, that you've just uh, fought, these great battles. And that's why he's a, he's a viable candidate, because he's had great military successes. And Coriolanus is a very proud man and has no intention of debasing himself by displaying his wounds. So in a sense, it's it's a story about a man trying to keep true to himself, yet adhere to these political rituals that you need to adhere to in order to be successful in a campaign. And I think that echoes very much today, where on the one hand, candidates are encouraged to be true to themselves, and yet they have to sort of modulate and moderate and change their tone and emphasis in order to get the support first in the primaries and then get in the support of the in the general election and you see comments about 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 Romney and Obama tilting to the left or tilting to the right or emphasizing certain themes in order to get that popular support and i think people who are voting for a candidate want someone who's true true to himself or true to herself, but they also want someone who's going to appeal to their particular politics. And I find that really interesting. The other point that about the beginning of the play is you mentioned the Tea Party. I mean, rather than Occupy, this reminds me more of the Tea Party movement today because you have Indeed. people people mm-hmm. who have a certain strident cause. I mean, in this play, it's about being fed and not fighting in the wars without being fed. And today, you know, it, it, whether it's on the social issues or on the fiscal issues, you have a large sort of popular movement that is resulting in candidates who are not moderates, candidates who have strong beliefs mm-hmm. and are true to themselves. And some of them are getting elected and some of them are not. Uh, Alicia, I heard you wanting to respond to Dan. Well, yes, I, I agree. And there's also that anger factor that plays into some of that, too. I mean, we're in a very angry time politically um, where, you know, straddling a vision that, that makes you somewhat inflexible with your sense of the populist, a populist, which makes you more of a flip-flopper. I mean, how, how do you subdue your inner Coriolanus? But, uh, you know, Callie, I also wanted to respond to your question to both Daniel and Stephen about a point that stood out. And I, I guess I, I'm a little bit more on the street with this. They're, they're being philosophical and, and um, intellectual about it. For me, it was hearing Obama call the working class voters um, saying that they cling to guns or religion. You, you might remember him making that In the comment. 2008 election. Yes, exactly. Mm-hmm. Or, or Romney saying he wasn't concerned about the very poor or in the world of Coriolanus, you know, the beastly plebeians. Mm. Um, so, you know, I, I was thinking about it again right out of the headlines. And, you know, of course, all of these are how we perceive them being disparaging toward working class voters. Uh, but but that was very resonant for me as as I read this play again. Well, I have to say that the anger thing really did stand out for me. I, I was just like sort of smacked in the face with it. And I thought, wow, um, you know, and these people had some real world 
I need some bread, you know, ang- reason to be angry. But it did really resonate with what you you can't go around and have a conversation with folks uh, without hearing that sort of palpable anger. And mm-hmm. I thought he captured well, that really well. Well, Kelly, there's this one moment in the play, and I love this line, where Coriolanus's response is, I could beat 40 of them. You know, I mean, mm-hmm. he, he just really goes at it with such primal, visceral anger um, and as I think um, Stephen or, or Daniel, you can tell me who exactly it is who says this. It says, is it um, um, Menenius says his heart's in his mouth. Mm. And we have to be so careful about that as a politician. You can't have your heart in your mouth the way he does. Right. Menenius is the ultimate Thank politician. You. He's the one who's able to sort of flow easily from the aristocracy to the working class. Mm-hmm. He's the true politician of the, of the play. Um, And it's interesting, isn't it, that to say your heart is in your mouth is a criticism. It's a bad thing. (laughs) But that is the irony of this His heart is on fire. His heart is on fire, you know. And would you you say that um, his mother... Volumnia is is the other great politician of this play. Absolutely, I mean, as Dan said, she should be running things. Um, she's, <laughs> and, and does kind of. <laughs> she does, though only through other people. But no, she has a very clear vision, and she's a take no prisoners uh, attitude towards life too. She she knows what she wants. She believes it's the right thing, and she'll destroy anything and anyone in the way, including her own daughter in law, uh, if 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 they're an obstacle to the path. Dan, Kelly, I wonder what? if I could mm. if I could ask a quick question mm. of of Stephen. Um, you, you you undoubtedly know Stephen in that that in the 1930s, a production at the Comédie Française uh, famously broke into riots uh, with both the communists and the fascists, thinking that it was propaganda for the other side. It, it made me mm. wonder when I was reading about that if you had a sense of a message you wanted to convey with this play. Uh, as you produced it, I, I think it's a it's a terrific question. I mean, I, you know, I think that one of the images that stands out, visual images that stands out to me when I think about this play, is that image that's sort of etched in all of our brains of of the Saddam Hussein uh, statue being pulled down by a combination of American soldiers and and people from the country who revolted against this leader. Um, I, I, I feel like, uh, you know, we've seen such change. I was actually, uh, ironically, in Amman, Jordan, doing some workshops right in the middle of the Arab Spring, and, and that country was obviously much more stable than many other countries around it. But it was fascinating to me to be kind of in this hotbed of of political discourse and of revolution and of, uh, you know, people looking at many, many years of their history and saying, we want to redefine ourselves. We want to reinvent ourselves. And what I find so interesting about this play is that I feel like our time is so polarized and so angry and the discourse is so superficial and so fractured. And I hope what the play does is open up uh, as a perhaps a negative example of how one uh, tries to create change, uh, an opportunity for discussion about how we do move forward because at the end of November, you know, one of these two men are going to be the president and, uh, you know, the success of the country moving forward will be really about not how they work within their own party, but how they work with with the other party. And I think that that dissension that we see in this country is is very troubling to me. And I'm I'm very eager to have this play be a, a point of discourse about how far awry things can go when you really submit yourselves to this polarization uh, that that we see in our politics today. All right. Well, that's a good good pause point. We'll be continuing the conversation. We're talking about Shakespeare's political drama Coriolanus. The Commonwealth Shakespeare Company will be staging it for this season's Shakespeare on the Common. It runs through July 25th through August 12th. We're talking about why Coriolanus, set in 15th century Rome, resonates today. And I've been speaking with Steve Mailer. You just heard him, the founding artistic director of the Commonwealth Shakespeare Company. Steve, we're going to let you go. We know you have to get back to work, but Dan Kelly and Alicia Anstead are sticking around. And we'll continue the conversation with two of the CEOs who participated in the stage reading. Get their thoughts on leadership and Coriolanus. This is WGBH Boston Public Radio. This program is on WGBH thanks to you.
and Mass Eye and Ear, caring for children with eye, ear, nose, and throat problems using advanced techniques and leading-edge technology. Mass Eye and Ear, in Boston and with locations north, south, and west of Boston. MassEyeandEar.org. And Skinner, auctioneers and appraisers. I've listened to WGBH radio and watched WGBH television for all my adult life. Stephen Fletcher, executive vice president. And we find that our audience tends to be made up of people who are also listeners and viewers of WGBH, and we thought it's a perfect fit for us. We're targeting the right people. To learn more, visit WGBH.org sponsorship. PRI's The World is people. I begin my day by taking a brisk 40 minutes walk in the desert, which helps me knock everything into proportion. The world is different. When I come back home and switch on the radio and I hear politicians using words such as never, forever, or for eternity, I know the stones out in the desert are laughing at them. Join us on The World. Coming up at 3 here on 89.7 WGBH. If you're looking for something that's cool and sweet and sprinkled with fun, the WGBH Fun Fest is all that with a cherry on top. Saturday, July 14th at WGBH in Brighton. It's a day hand-packed with ice-creamy goodness. Mix it up with PBS Kids characters, swirl in some rides, games, music, and more. It's enough to make you melt. Tickets will sell out, and that's a sure bet, so don't waffle. Get the whole scoop at WGBH.org slash FunFest while you still cone. Uh, sorry, can. MIT's 100K Entrepreneurship Competition has generated billions in profit in its 23-year history. Hear what ideas this year's competitors came up with on Innovation Hub, Saturday morning at 7 here on WGBH Radio. Welcome back to the Callie Crossley Show. If you're just tuning in, we're talking about Shakespeare's play Coriolanus. Last week, a handful of Boston CEOs gathered for a staged reading of this political drama. Joining me to talk about what lessons there are in this work for today's leaders are Dan Kelly. He's a partner at McCarter and English. Alicia Anstead, editor of Inside Arts Magazine and Harvard Arts Beat Blog. Paul Grogan, the president and CEO of the Boston Foundation. And Jim Roosevelt, the president and CEO of Tufts Health Plan. Thanks for joining us. Great to be here. here. So I want to start off uh, with you two CEOs and find out, A, what part did you read? Um... And how did you connect with it? So I'll start with you, Paul. <laughs> well, my part was uh, Sicinius, is that uh, right? And actually, Jim and I had uh, similar roles as scheming uh, tribunes. Uh, well, I wasn't going to say that, but okay, yeah. I'll let you say it. Tribunes yeah. of the people. Yeah, tribunes okay. of the people. <laughs> yeah. and, uh, we, True uh, Democrats. <laughs> <laughs> Rabble rousers, I'd say. And we played a, uh, a rather pivotal role in uh, in engineering the exile of uh, Coriolanus and uh, on behalf of the people, uh, fearful as we were about his, uh, uh, his power. So uh, uh, it was kind of fun for the two of us to uh, play those roles, I think. How did you uh, connect to it? Well, um, I've spent some time in, uh, in Boston politics. I, I worked for both uh, Kevin White and, uh, and Ray Flynn. And so uh, I'm uh, very familiar that politics is... Uh, a revenge sport, <laughs> and uh, not for the not for the faint uh, faint-hearted, uh, but it is uh, it is rather cruel and rather abrupt what happens to this war hero who thinks he's headed for the leadership position and ends up uh, uh, being exiled and then, of course, uh, murdered. So, uh, James Roosevelt, what part did you play? I know it was a Tribune as well, but and how did you resonate with it? Well, I, there certainly were real parallels to real life, uh, and they're not just to political life, uh, but to uh, the, the great thing for me about uh, first reading the play, uh, and I'd like to say rereading, but I think it was the first time I've read it, uh, <laughs> uh, 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 and uh, and then thinking about it, uh, because after the performance, we did a panel discussion on leadership. Uh, thinking about its implications, the great thing for me was, first of all, just the opportunity to reflect and then to think uh, about uh, what leadership qualities, what strengths, what weaknesses uh, were applicable not only in the public sector but also in our daily and business lives. So what makes a great leader? Well, uh, you know, if we start with Coriolanus, uh, uh, 
uh, we're looking at uh, Shakespeare's depiction of a man who, first of all, was a great leader on the battlefield. Uh, and uh, if you think about that, you're dealing with uh, tremendous, often terrible confrontation, but you're also dealing with strategy and tactics and, in the case of a military leader, the ability to give people orders. When mm -hmm. he tries to make the transition to the political sphere, uh, that last item, the ability to give people orders, really doesn't exist anymore. Uh, yes, there's strategy and there's tactics, but there is the need to uh, connect with, to communicate with the people that you are leading. And that's the big contrast when you look at Coriolanus. Uh, he had no desire, as, as well as probably no ability, to make that leap. Uh, uh, Paul, what do, you th what do you say about it? What makes a good leader? Well, I, I do think that uh, real uh, power and an ability to do things really does come from the bottom up. And often people think that because they've been given formal authority, I would say even in the military that where you, there is more of a commanding control, that that's all you need to get people to, uh, to do what you want. And of course, what is much more powerful is motivating people, inspiring people so that they are not coerced into doing something but are freely uh, giving of themselves. And uh, I think that characterizes all great leaders, including, uh, including uh, generals. You know, this made me think of the two World War II leaders who had political ambitions, Douglas MacArthur and Dwight Eisenhower. And of course, MacArthur blew himself up, much like Coriolanus did. Uh, and revealed himself, I think, as unfit for civilian leadership, whereas Dwight Eisenhower, who had played a role, a very different role in the war, where he had to constantly hold this alliance together and negotiate, particularly with the British, in terms of the conduct of the war. And it equipped him with political skills that MacArthur, who ran the Pacific Campaign by himself, I mean, he had a superior, but he didn't, he wasn't into this coalition stuff all the time. He could just basically decide which island to invade. Uh, and it's just sort of interesting that uh, one blew himself up and Dwight Eisenhower in the eyes of many historians now is sort of improving his reputation as a, as a quite a good president. So, Dan Kelly, what we've learned is that these two were playing tribunes and they were fomenting, really. As I read it, if from thinking about it politically, they seemed like super PACs. <laughs> you know, that's what I took away from it. It's like, here are two, these two super PACs and they're putting out the message, however they want to shape it, and fomenting. And, and, and they've talked about what makes good leadership and it's growing from the bottom up, navigating, figuring out what, you know, how you get people to think about it. So, in, in Coriolanus, what I keep thinking about is that there, the absence of leadership seems to also have an impact on yeah, what happens it, here. Uh, I would actually say the patricians and Cor Coriolanus's mother were the super PACs. They were the ones <laughs> who were promoting and funding his, his brief and unsuccessful campaign. I mean, the two most successful politicians in the play are the two guys sitting right here next to me, the tribunes, because they obviously were elected by the plebeians to represent them. Uh, and the, tr the, the it, actually during the course of the play, that office is created as a result of demands by the plebeians that they're not going to continue to fight unless they get fed and have their own representatives. And they are master politicians in the play because they're the ones who manipulate the people who are at first first hate Coriolanus because he openly is disdainful to them and their demands at the beginning, then worship him because he's a great military hero, and then they they exploit Coriolanus's vulnerabilities and lack of political charisma uh, to their own advantage, increasing their power. So that Coriolanus shows no leadership. They show the true leadership and ultimately lead to his demise. Do we see in Coriolanus uh, a what seems to be, uh, among some, a disdain for business or a disconnect for business right now that I'm sure both of you are feeling uh, because th the people feel like they're their issues are not being heard, and that somehow businessmen are sort of getting over on them, taking them advantage of them. Well, I think whether you look at the Tea Party movement or the Occupy movement, you see, uh, it, it, while their particular objections may be different, their basic distrust of the business and government establishments is very comparable to what rises up from the people in the play. Would you agree, Paul? Yeah, and I, I think. 
you see extremist uh, political movements in times of great anxiety about the future. And I think certainly in my lifetime, we've never been more uncertain or tentative about America's future, uh, both what it will offer its own citizens and its place in the world. And in that kind of environment, it, it creates a fertile soil for, uh, for demagogues and uh, uh, you know, Franklin Roosevelt spent an enormous amount of time and revealed his supreme political skills, I would argue, in heading off the various extremist movements that, that took hold in the country during the, during the Great Depression. I think people t tend to underestimate that the role of the New Deal in reaffirming the spirit of Americans as, uh, as having a common purpose as opposed to splitting apart the way Paul just uh, suggested. You're listening to 89.7 WGBH and online at WGBH.org. We're talking about Shakespeare's play Coriolanus with a focus on what today's leaders can learn from this drama. We're joined by Dan Kelly, a partner at McCarter and English, Alicia Anstead, editor of Inside Arts magazine and the Harvard Arts Beat blog, Paul Grogan, the president and CEO of the Boston Foundation, and Jim Roosevelt, the president and CEO of Tufts Health Plan. Alicia, did you have a question for our CEOs? Well, I'm interested in the role of a, a character saying, basically, I am what I am, and that's who I'm going to be. And Coriolanus is one of those pure characters. How do you see, I mean, do you see a Coriolanus today? Hmm. I'm not sure that, uh, that we do, but it really brings to mind, I think, the contradictory demands we place on our leaders and politicians. We want them to represent us and take our views mm -hmm. into account, and of course, interest groups are very effective at, at uh, getting candidates to uh, adopt their position. And then we say, we want you to be yourself, you know, your true self and, mm -hmm. and stick to your beliefs. In a way, that's a, almost a completely contradictory set of uh, expectations. And that's why you see a lot of politicians, and certainly Romney comes to mind here, uh, on making themselves look rather ridiculous trying to straddle mm -hmm. those two uh, or trying to meet those two contradictory demands. I think the closest Do you think we, that you... I, I was oh, just going to oh, add the closest we mm -hmm. come is Ron Paul, of all people, mm -hmm. who, who, yes, who, who has stuck fast to his principles and has a loyal following but is never going to get elected president. But, I mean, he's a great example That's of a, a guy point. who just says what he thinks uh, even though uh, many of his views are viewed as extreme by all political parties. I was going to cite so, that example and also just uh, add Rick Santorum uh, mm. to that category. And, and so interesting is part... No, I was going to say, I think what I hear you saying is that there's really no electability to a straight-talking politician. I don't think we're quite saying that. <laughs> <laughs> and if they do get elected, they become, you know, part of the late night domain, right? Late night television domain. Uh, but, but it, I mean, it does sound like what you're saying is these are people who, you know, speak up about who they are and what they want, but they're not electable. Well, what's interesting mm -hmm. is the last straight-talking politician, I think, who actually got a huge percentage of the vote and could have been president was Ross Perot. I mean, he was mm -hmm. a, a businessman who That's came right. to politics mm -hmm. in that 1992 uh, uh, election and wound up, I think, getting almost 30 percent of the vote. Um, some blame him for, for uh, Bush losing or credit him for Clinton winning. And he was a straight-talking politician. And I think because he came from a non-political environment and his campaign campaign was based upon reform as opposed to certain ideological issues that he was able to get a lot of support. Of course, it was not enough to get him over the finish line. But, there, there, but if you think about that, there was also Ralph Nader, who was, I think, pretty straight talking, but people did not accept his straight talk as much as they did, it seems to me, percentage-wise anyway, Ross Perot. Right. But this brings to mind a, a dimension of leadership I think is very important, which is actually taking people's opinions into account but taking them somewhere where mm. where where you need to go and i think about again i keep coming back to uh, to roosevelt um you know roosevelt had to try to prepare a very reluctant united states for entry into world war 2 and ultimately he, he he got a lot of help from the japanese in the form of pearl harbor and then then hitler spontaneously declaring war on the united states so he ultimately uh, was handed those things but he played a huge role in moving the country closer and closer to an acceptance of something that they, they abhorred which is getting involved in another european war after the experience of uh, world war 1 that's leadership to me is is not ignoring people's views uh, but uh, understanding that uh, the function of leadership is to take people where 
uh, to a destination where we need to be. I think it's interesting. Oh, that's if you... my guest, uh, Paul Grogan, the president and CEO of the Boston Foundation. And here's Jim Roosevelt, the president and CEO of Tufts Health Plan. Go so, ahead, Jim. So, uh, thanks, Kelly. Uh, um, <laughs> I think it's interesting if you look back at how my grandfather, FDR, brought uh, uh, brought the country uh, uh, along to what was probably a strategic position that he identified before he articulated it. So uh, Alicia might say that that's not wasn't straight talking because he didn't talk about it immediately. Mm -hmm. But he started with uh, being clear that he hated war as much as everybody else did. But then he started talking about, here's the situation that we're facing. That's what the fireside chats were all about. Uh, 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 one of those that I uh, love uh, listening to is when he uh, told people to, uh, before you sit down next to your radio, uh, uh, pull out your maps and follow along on the map with me. Uh, so that people began to see, uh, we don't want war, we don't want it again, uh, uh, but look at what's happening. Look how uh, we are being uh, we are being forced into a situation where if we don't act and if we don't unite to act together, uh, we will be overwhelmed. So you know what both you and Paul have said is Paul says you got to take everybody's opinion and lead them somewhere. You say you have to explain to people where you're trying to go, even if it's uh, somewhere they may not want to go. Uh, Coriolanus. Uh, was reluctant to show his wounds uh, to make him be a part of the people to say, listen, I've suffered this. And, and so you, you know, at least hear me and see me as a person that could be among you and I have something to say. And that didn't serve him well. So we'll talk about why that didn't when we come back. <laughs> We're talking about Shakespeare's political drama, Coriolanus, and why this play, set in 15th century Rome, resonates with us today. We're also looking at what lessons there are in this work for today's leaders. The conversation continues on 89.7 W. GBH, Boston Public Radio. Funding for our programs comes from you and Innuendo, presenting the Hunter Douglas Celebration of Light Window Fashions event, featuring Hunter Douglas Duet Architella energy-efficient shades, silhouette, and luminette shading systems. Innuendo.com. And Blake & Associates at Old City Hall, a Boston law firm with over three decades of experience in trust law, estate planning, and advocacy. They listen and understand the issues you face. BlakeLaw.com and the growing number of WGBH sustainers who manage their contributions to public radio with the help of monthly installments and automatic renewals. Learn more about the ease of sustaining membership at WGBH.org. On Fresh Air, you'll hear the questions you wish you could have asked to people like Tom Kenny, the voice of SpongeBob SquarePants. Did it help to hear what your voice sounded like on helium? Did you learn something about your voice you didn't know before? Yeah, I learned that I don't really need the helium. Because <laughs> it's pretty easy to flick that switch and go right up there. The most interesting people in show business on fresh air. This afternoon at 2, here on 89.7 WGBH. It's time to spring into action for the 47th annual WGBH Spring Auction. Bid on fine jewelry, gift certificates, exciting vacations, weekend getaways, and even a brand new Toyota Prius, donated by your New England Toyota dealer. Every winning bid supports WGBH radio and television. So not only will you get a great deal, you'll feel great while you're doing it. But act fast. The spring auction ends on May 31st. Place your bids now at auction.wgbh.org. High-tech biotech. Innovation is what we in Massachusetts are about. Venture firms. The WGBH Xconomy Report, Friday during Morning Edition. A partnership between Xconomy.com and 89.7 WGBH. Welcome back to the Callie Crossley Show. If you're just tuning in, we're talking about Shakespeare's play Coriolanus. Last week, a handful of Boston CEOs gathered for a staged reading of this political drama. We're talking about what lessons our leaders can learn from this work and also the importance of literature and what can be extracted from literature. Do great leaders need to be great readers? I'm joined by Dan Kelly. He's a partner at McCarter and English. Alicia Anstead, our arts and culture contributor. Paul Grogan, the president and CEO 
CEO of the Boston Foundation, and Jim Roosevelt, the president and CEO of Tufts Health Plan. Uh, Dan, when you put this program together 12 years ago, uh, it was your feeling that there could be some lessons extracted from it from literature. What what about leadership? At that time, you were doing lawyers. This, this year, it's about business that, that made you know that this would work well. Well, I, you know, I've all my life, I've been a fan of Shakespeare, and I think uh, there's a reason these plays have lasted over 400 years. I mean, he he is, there's no greater uh, writer in the English language who portrays in all its uh, uh, capacities the human condition and in such a beautiful way and, and in such a way that just captures the imagination and leaves a lasting impression upon the, the person who hears the play, a person who sees the play. And uh, I, I think it is the human condition is can be portrayed in so many different ways. That's the the beauty of these plays is you can take Hamlet or Julius Caesar or the Merchant of Venice and talk about uh, 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 politics, talk about the legal aspects. I mean, last year we did the Merchant of Venice and talked about anti-Semitism. We talked it the half the play takes place in a court of law and the issues raised in the court. Um, so it, it is one of those uh, things that 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 we can use as a vehicle, I think, that's timeless, that allows for us to use in an ecumenical and bipartisan way to talk about issues that are very contentious sometimes, but brings people together because of the, the truths that are in the, in the work itself and the beauty of the language. So th that's why I think it works, and it's been very successful every year. That's my guest, Dan Kelly. He's a partner at McCarter and English, and he put together these stage readings about Shakespeare with uh, lawyers, and now this year of this year, Boston CEOs. So my question for uh, you two CEOs, there appears to be a spirit of anti-intellectualism going on in the country uh, so that, you know, people don't want to uh, give credit to or see as foundational literature or, or as a way of raising the kind of issues that Dan just articulated very well. I mean, Jim, as a, you know, what, what can leaders like yourself say uh, about that, uh, to make it clear that there is a connection. <laughs> well, isn't it interesting that there? You, you certainly can identify that spirit uh, among uh, some important forces in the uh, in the population, and yet we have probably one of our most intellectual presidents in modern times uh, 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 at the top of our governing structure uh, right now, and I think coming th coming through the probably the most difficult economic times since the Great Depression, his, uh, his intellectual uh, foundations have been very important for the style of leadership that he's brought to the country. Whether that is appreciated by the majority of the people, we won't know for a few months uh, yet. Uh, I do think that uh, they, in one sense, there's, there is an anti-intellectual anti spirit, and in another... There is great popularity uh, for books that talk about leadership, uh, that talk about uh, – and I'm talking now not about literature. I'm mm. talking about uh, professional reading. Mm. Uh, and so I think there is a recognition and a hunger for leadership but a skepticism uh, about some of the leadership that got us uh, uh, where we came to uh, a f four years ago. Paul Grogan? I think there is uh... – uh, a, a problem in the country, and I, I see it perhaps because I have a, a, a son uh, graduating from college this season in the whole debate about the future of the liberal arts mm -hmm. and the declining popularity of it because it's not uh, supposedly vocational uh, enough. And it, kids, I think, get put under a lot of pressure to do something very directed. And uh, what I told my son at the beginning of his uh, uh, college was that uh, liberal arts education is the best vocational education you can have uh, because not only does it make your head an interesting place to inhabit for the rest of your life, but uh, we're going to change jobs a lot. And what, the enduring power of Shakespeare is he's pre he illuminates in his various plays the human condition, as Dan said. And that's what the liberal arts is all about. It's probing the human condition in the form of literature and history and philosophy and religion and art. And uh, that's also, I think, the best equipment for uh, being a successful uh, politician. And my favorite quote about this from Henry Adams is uh, – uh, in the education of Henry Adams, his autobiography was uh, that uh, a knowledge of human nature is the beginning and the end of a political education. Wow. Alicia. 
Well, I really appreciate what all three of your guests have said. And um, I, I, I want to point out that that this is the, what's what's really fortunate here is that literature is making its way onto our stages thanks to the work of people like Dan Kelly and Stephen Mahler. But also medical schools and law schools and business schools are looking to literature and putting it into the curriculum to, to help people uh, think more deeply about human beings. And just up the road at the Maine Humanities Council, there's a similar program called Literature and Medicine, which is an award-winning reading and discussion program for healthcare professionals. It's extended to many, many other states now. But what happened with the Maine Humanity Councils is in a study they did, they found that participants had greater empathy for patients and colleagues, had higher cultural awareness, had increased job satisfaction, and improved interpersonal communication skills. So whether you're in law or medicine or a CEO or just like any of the rest of us in the world, um, you know, th- these are we strive for certainty. And what literature and I would say art in general teaches us is to synthesize something more human, and that is uncertainty. And I'd go maybe even, I certainly agree with that. Uh, I'd go to maybe even to one other quality, which is empathy. Mm-hmm. Uh, Absolutely. And, and uh, you can go to very scientific fields and you can find in postgraduate training uh, very now what's considered innovative efforts to bring empathy back into the forefront. There's a program uh, uh, here in Boston uh, uh, called the Schwartz Center for Compassionate Care that emphasizes uh, teaching caregivers on how to provide compassionate care, not just c- cutting-edge scientific uh, uh, medicine. Uh, and there is also an academic uh, program in the Department of Psychiatry at Mass General that emphasizes empathy in providing care. I think another another element is the reflection, and that that's what really builds the empathy and the awareness and understanding to take the time to reflect on a work of art such as Shakespeare and mm-hmm. other works of art, obviously. So that reflection, I believe, is is import, is an important companion piece to the empathy. Uh, Dan? What I was going to say about empathy is a really interesting point about we're not just talking about literature in these programs. We're talking about performing literature, the, mm-hmm. the experience of Owning theater. it, as you... Exactly. Mm-hmm. But not just owning it yourself, mm-hmm. but working with an ensemble and hearing the words through the other voices and working together in order to produce a, a whole, a, a great work or an echo of a great work. And and the 12 years I've been doing this, I've put people on the stage who are could be con- considered vicious political enemies, people of completely different views and philosophies, and yet they have worked together. I mean, we had Carrie, Carrie Healy and Jarrett Barrios, of all people, doing <laughs> Romeo and Juliet six or seven years ago. And and now they're the best of friends. Mm-hmm. And I think, but but more than that, they, they were able to meet on that stage, say these great words, and have empathy toward each other, recognize the truths that are in the literature, and come to some common ground on our own little stage. And I think the experience of of theater is something that can can do that and can create, you know, uh, take out of diversity and create something beautiful and perhaps something that works. I mean, it's a great. So Dan, lesson. you need you need you need to get on the Department of Education team and, and get <laughs> arts back in our schools because we we know this. What we haven't done, Dan, and 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 you probably know this too, is we haven't documented it very well. We don't have the hard data that shows exactly what you're saying. We have. Um, we have everyone's testimony to it. What we don't have is the data that would back up the support. Well, which is why I'm going to the testimony of these two CEOs to ask, uh, what was your reflection uh, as a result of owning your part and playing it and extracting whatever the lessons uh, from Coriolanus, Paul Grogan? Well, I said earlier that we place contradictory demands on our leaders and our politicians. We want them to be their own person, but we want them to represent our views. I think actually empathy is a way out of that. There's a difference between empathy and pandering uh, in, in a way that is uh, inauthentic. Empathy is connecting with people even if you don't uh, always agree with them. And Coriolanus obviously was absolutely wasn't into pandering, but he wasn't into empathy either. I mean, he wouldn't even get into that, that sort of uh, ambiguous area, and uh, that was uh, key to his downfall. Jim? I, I agree with that, but I also think that the other thing that a leader has to do is have a pretty clear vision of where she or he is trying to take the 
body politic or the country or the, uh, the, the body that they're governing. Uh, and then within that, have empathy with the people it affects, how it affects them, and frankly, either bringing them along or learning from them uh, where they're prepared to go. Uh what would you? What book would you? Would each of you recommend that a leader read, having had this experience now with Coriolanus? Well, I, I'd go back to uh, All the King's Men by Robert Penn Warren, which is the fictionalized story of uh, of Huey Long. I think that is one of the great uh, political novels that in which you see all of what we've what we've talked about. How about you, Jim? Well, trying to think about a piece of literature. Uh, yeah, probably the right answer with Dan sitting here is to say is to pick one of the Shakespearean plays. The trouble is that they're tragedies, uh, and uh, well, he's got a few comedies. Uh, yes, yeah. but the ones about leadership are really yeah, okay. uh, uh, really tragedies. The others are also about the human experience. Mm-hmm. But the, and so I'm torn between uh, sort of modern literature and classic literature. If I'm thinking about uh, modern literature, I'd probably go for. Uh, to Kill a Mockingbird. Mm. If I'm thinking about classic literature, I'd probably go for the Bible. All right. Alicia, your, your pick. Well, if you're, if you're asking me about leaders on a desert island, I am going to say my Riverside Shakespeare. But if we're just talking about today, all of us sitting around the room saying, what book should you read? I'm probably going to say The Spirit Catches You and You Fall Down by Anne Fadiman, which is a deeply insightful book about understanding other people in our community and how we, we support them and hold them back. Uh, all right, Dan, you have to weigh in. I have to go with Macbeth. There's no greater study than <laughs> I'm with you um, on that. leadership and, and <laughs> the fault lines that exist there than that play. Um, and it's an easy read. It's a great introduction to Shakespeare. To pick, to use, pick that play first. Okay. Uh, thank you all so very much for this interesting conversation. And uh, Dan, for your selecting this play, because I'm like Jim Roosevelt. I never read it before. So, so here we are. <laughs> thank you so much. And come see us in the summer. All right. <laughs> We've been talking about Shakespeare's political drama, Coriolanus, and the lessons that this play has to offer our 21st century leaders. I've been speaking with Dan Kelly, a partner at McCarter in English, Alicia Anstead, editor of Inside Arts Magazine and the Harvard Arts Beat blog, Paul Grogan, the president and CEO of the Boston Foundation, and Jim Roosevelt, the president and CEO of Tufts Health Plan. Thank you so much. The Commonwealth Thanks, Shakespeare Shelley. Company will be producing Coriolanus for this season's Shakespeare on the Common. It runs Je- July 25th through August the 12th. To learn more, be sure to visit wgbharts.org to get listings, backstories, and suggestions that can help you experience the arts here in New England. That's wgbharts.org. The Cali Crossley Show is a production of WGBH, Boston Public Radio.